Gaming and BS episode 137, how we run session zero. Welcome to Gaming and BS, a tabletop RPG podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. And I'm Brett. I think I'm recovered. Welcome to the show. How you doing? You recovered? I think so. My cough has gone way down. Oh, yeah, yeah. And sound uh, much better. I do. I, I sound a little bit better. I had that whole smoking Lucky Strikes, or if you don't know, if you're too young to know what a Lucky Strike is, it'd be like smoking Marlboros and breaking the filters off would be what that would be like. That's what I sounded like for about three weeks, so. Feeling better, though, so that's all good. That's and great, I, Brett. I got some sunburn because Sean and I were out doing a little, uh, uh, you know, knees in the breeze time, motorcycling. That was fun. Knees oh, nice. in the breeze. Knees in the breeze. And Sean, you just bought a new bike, too. Where are you going to on Wednesday? Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. Yep, the yep. La- last motorcycle a biker buys is the one just before he dies. So there you go. <laughs> that's usually how that works. That's true. All right. So enough motorcycle talk, shall we? Yeah. Announcements. Yeah. The first one up, we talked about this before, event submissions for Gamehole Con. GameholeCon.com, of course. Get your ass to Gamehole. Um, are open. If you want to run under our banner at Gamehole, if you want to run a game and say, hey, under the Gaming BS banner, Sean, what do they do? They, they they just, you know, send a smoke signal? How do they do that? What do we do here? Yeah, you can submit it to Gamehole Con directly. Um, there is a group field in there. Now, yeah, yes. That would be the way. You could do that. Or what we would probably prefer is if you just run it by us. Before you submit it, not the only reason I say that is because we've got to make sure we keep guys like VC Young under wraps. I mean, that guy's a little crazy. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Kidding, VC. (laughs) No, but we want to make sure that if if we know for a fact that we've got, oh, there's you want to run the game at this time, and if we happen to be talking to some like Forrester Gary, who's putting who's putting some stuff in, like, hey, we know when he's planning to run, or oh, I want to run something around those same times, we can. Maybe help coordinate with you a little bit, or if you've got questions or something, it's always handy for us to see what we can do to help you out. That's about that's about the long and short of it, eh? And the big re- another reason is we want to know who's running what, so we can say, hey, if you're going to game whole con, we've got Forrest who's running DCC and uh, this particular game, and here's a synopsis. Make sure you check it out or bookmark his game so when it event registration opens up for attendees you can um snake that up no absolutely that's a very good point we want to make sure we shill our best for our listeners if you um, men and women are kind enough to run games and say that you are connected to us in any way shape or form we will do our best to make it uh, worth your time and uh hook you up with some as many gamers as we can wrangle to your table so yeah we'll definitely do that um the other piece is i think i've talked about this before but i just want to say it out loud is i'm going to origins in june this year Sean, I don't think you're going to be able to swing that one, but I'm going to be able to make Origins. Kevin and Austin have been kind enough to let me crash in their hotel, so I'm going to split room costs with them. I know the Misdirected Mark boys will be there. I think we have some people, uh, Stephen Dragonspawn, I think, uh, from Canada's coming down. I think Mo- Stefan. Stefan, sorry, Stefan. I think Stefan's coming. I think we've got, well, I'm pretty damn sure he's coming. He's told me so. And, uh, hey, I would never, never assume the Dragonspawn would lie to me. If he says he's coming, he's coming. Uh, Mo Tusano, the uh, game father, should be there as well, and uh, should be a damn good time. So I'm hoping, 
I'm hoping uh, any listeners out there, if you bump into me or whatever, be sure to say hi, and I'd love to chat with you, share a beer, or do whatever. So that'd be cool. It's in June, huh? It is indeed in June. You're riding down? You know, I'm actually tempted to. i got to talk to Kevin about travel arrangements. But yeah, it's June 14th through the 18th, and uh, I'm tempted to ride the bike down. I don't know if I want to do it, though. Because it's not driving through Illinois to get there is not the most fun, but it's possible. We'll see what happens. Sweet. Shall we then? Yeah, let's get into random encounter. Random encounter segment of the show where we field emails, voicemails, comments from social media. Uh, we're going to lead off with comments from our last episode, which involved our discussion about player facing die rolls. You want to start, Brett? Sure. Let's see. Adam uh, Marler writes in to us and says, I think this might be the first time Adam's written in. Could I, be. I think so. It could be. Well, Adam, thank you, sir. Anyway, Adam says, really dug the latest episode, but a point that I'd like to make that I see missed in a lot in a lot of discussions on player-facing die rolls is that the GM is a player, too. They aren't a quote-unquote player as defined by the rule book, but when I sit down with my group, I'm playing the game as well, and part of what makes playing RPGs fun for me is rolling dice. A lot of discussion lately seems to be unfocused around making the game as fun as possible for the players and catering, catering most of the game to them. But GM's got to have fun, too. And personally, for me, rolling dice, controlling monsters, triggering traps, etc. is a lot of fun. Again, play whatever feels best to you, but I don't want new GMs to assume that the best way to GM is to do 100% of what the players want, ignore what makes the game fun for them as well. Anyways, a small point, but one I haven't seen mentioned too much. Keep up the good work. Love the show. Yeah, that's a that is a damn damn good point from Adam. Well, we've talked about that type of thing before, right? I mean, if your group strong arms you into, hey Brad, I want you to run Pendragon. I'm like, I don't feel like running Pendragon. All right, I guess if that's what you want. If I don't feel like it, or if I con you know Angela or somebody into running a game they don't want to play, it's not going to be that much fun. And similar similar here is if you're like, I really like it when I as the player are the only one who roll dice. The person who is your regular game master, he or she may say, you know what, I um, that doesn't trip my trigger that much. I really don't want to do that. Or I'll play if you run the game then. You know, maybe that's maybe that's an opportunity. But I think that, that is definitely true. We've talked about kind of the empowerment and all that stuff between players and game masters. And game masters, are you're there to play the game too. Yeah, you might have a certain level of control uh, depending on the game you're playing. But, uh, yeah, if you're not having fun doing what you're doing, <laughs> it's it's not worth being there, man. Yeah, uh, I agree. And uh, moving on with Craig Huber uh, commenting on the same topic, I suspect the question to ask regarding player-facing die rolls is, does it matter if the players know how well they did? As you illustrated in the podcast, perception checks and combat rolls, especially in systems where the target number is effectively static, are the two scenarios that come to mind where it could be problematic depending on the style of the campaign and whether the system provides other ways to create any desired uncertainty. Hmm. Does it matter? You know, I don't know. I mean, in certain, I think that's almost a, not only a style perspective, but some game systems it does because let's say we're playing um, edge of the empire. If I don't know how well that goes, it's difficult to figure out the narrative components, right? If I 
if the game master, if Sean were to have rolled everything in secret and say, oh, tell me what happens, but make sure you fail a little bit. Um, what? You know, it, that's, that's part of that system is to n- see all those symbols and such on those funky dice and then be able to uh, narrate appropriately. And a source and a table and all that cool stuff that you can do there. So, hmm, 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 interesting. Yeah, depends on style of campaign and the game, but yeah, there's certain times when everybody kind of needs to see the dice in order to help uh, determine how well they did or failed. So yeah, that's an interesting thought. I like that. What do you yeah, think? What do you think, Sean? I, I again, it comes down to kind of preference. If you want to hold those perception checks back, it's. I don't know. It's so easy just to go, well, I rolled a 30. Well, you didn't find anything. Well, there cannot possibly be anything there then. Right? Yeah, exactly. You know, if they don't know they nailed it, then, you know, they don't know if they genuinely couldn't find something or they just didn't look close enough. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I have looked, I've sat down to play D&D and told myself, you know what I'm going to do this time? When I'm playing and, uh, you know, Darcy rolls, uh, wants to roll perception, I'm going to roll perception instead so she doesn't necessarily know what happened. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm totally going to, that's going to be a thing I want to make sure I do. And then every fucking time I sit down and roll, I'm like, give me a perception check. Ah, crap, I wanted to do that. It's like, you know, two sessions. It's just force a habit that I am so used to giving the player that die roll. So that concept of having me check for traps on behalf of the of the thief, Rogue, um, I always seems like a neat idea I want to try, but I always freaking forget to do it. Well, then yeah. you get into the, um, uh, you, you get in, if you were old school, you would just say, I look, where do you look? Well, I look in the bookshelf. Yeah, you don't find anything. All right, I look under the, I look under the bed. Oh, under the bed. Well, that's a different story. You do see something in the corner. Where do you, where do you, you know, whatever. Or you, where do you look under the bed? Where in those games, you would just tell them. Okay, yes. you looked under the bed. You find you found it. There is no role in some of the older school games. There's no skill. It's just where do you look? And it's all it's all narrative descriptive. If yeah. you if you know if Brandon and, and Elaine don't tell me where their characters looking, I just don't know what's happening. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Good yeah. points. This is cool stuff. I mean, this these are the things that you kind of got to run through your head when you're looking at it and trying to figure out: Is this for me? Do I want to try it? How am I going to deal with it? So okay. All right, boys, let's see here, and girls, we have, ladies and gentlemen, Jared Rasher writes in and says, just to follow up on the discussion about why you might want to try out player-facing die rolls, a game like D&D, Forbidden Rules, offers something similar for Shadow of the Demon Lord. In my case, at least part of it was that little mad scientist that lives in my skull, because I like several games that are mostly player-facing. I want to see what it would be like to modify a game that didn't have the assumption and see if it changed the feel of the game. In the case of D&D... I think the problem is that I have the weight of years since 1985 going against me. D&D has always had dice on both sides of the screen, so regardless of how well it works for anyone used to that setup, I think it's going to feel awkward. I'm curious to see if we were playing with people less used to D&D, or less used to how D&D quote-unquote should work, and started from the beginning with, with a campaign, if it would feel different. The interesting takeaway for me was that intellectually, I was sure it wouldn't affect my enjoyment of the game one way or the other. I thought it would be something that wouldn't feel more or less valid. But intellectually, I couldn't predict my own actual preference when I started using the rules in action. Hmm. I think that goes back to my issue of not being able to, oh, crap, I wanted to do all those die rolls myself or do it slightly different. That weight of gaming since third grade in a D&D 
traditional type of approach is not always easy to break. Hmm. Interesting. Well, and it is, it is maybe when you start talking about these, they're inherent to the game and the system, right? I mean, people that play D&D expect a certain type of transaction between the dungeon master and the players and how that's going to roll. It's almost like if you were to take it a powered by the apocalypse world, like dungeon world and say, Oh yeah. Hey players, I get to roll your stuff too. You know, we're going to try that once when it's inherently part of the game that the players roll those 2d6. Yeah. You know, you know, a key faction uh, piece of the rules here that y'all studied up and you know really well. Yeah. We're getting rid of that. Right. What? Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> which. <laughs> yeah, I get that. So yeah, there's baggage, and then there's, you know, then there's the actual game, um, and how it's kind of, for lack of better words, supposed to be played. Of course, you can modify anything, and nobody can tell you that it's you're out of your mind for doing it. But still, it's a factor. Yeah, it is absolutely. There's the intellectual component, as uh, Jared mentions, and then there's the actual, you know, rules as written component that we got to sort through. So. All right, Sean, over to you, sir. Jim Fitzpatrick, I will admit to owing Sean P. Kelly an apology after this one. As a linguist, I'm used to cringing at people's attempts to reproduce accents. I'm looking at you in arrival, Forrest Whitaker. But this isn't an accent, it was a character. Playing a character like that is like being in a band and writing original songs. Nobody knows what they're supposed to sound like. But if you play covers, then someone compares them to the original. Anyway, I am not saying you should do this all the time. But for this time it was fun. I'm glad yeah, I'm glad hey. Jim. I'm glad Jim had the large bold caveats there. Yeah, whatever, Jim. You know, I get it. No, that's cool. I, besides, it's a bit of a task if I had tried to do it every every show. <laughs> uh on the content of the show, one thing that wasn't brought up was the idea that if you have player-facing die rolls, you can, as the GM, decide how hard you push your moves slash intrusions when players fail. Example from D&D. The rogue fails a perception check to spot a trap, then steps on the pressure plate. It then follows from the rules in D&D that you apply the effect from the trap, either rolling to hit or asking the players to save versus something. Same example from Cypher. The rogue doesn't spot a trap. You slide 2 XP across the table, and you decide where to pick up the action. Does the rogue catch himself before he steps off the pressure plate, causing the rest of the party to have to figure out a way to disarm the trap without him? Or does the rogue stop before stepping on the pressure plate, but the mechanism to disarm it is on another level of the dungeon? Etc. Bonnie's, uh, Bonnie Cook's conception of an intrusion as a, quote, wouldn't be cool if, end quote, moment is useful here. If you keep your dice and your mechanics from, your, uh, from non-player-facing die roll games, then you're more locked into those rules. I'm not saying you're having wrong fun, wrong, wrong, having wrong fun. Oh, my God. Bad wrong fun, right? If you want that. But it can be restrictive. Yes. I agree. I think that's interesting is the <clears throat> when you're doing that and the game master uh he or she's got more power and not power is the wrong term, but more narrative potentially more narrative cre- creativity. So I would imagine if I was running with Darcy or Troy or they were running for me, 
that if we ran into that situation, they said, oh, you rolled a one. Guess what? I'm going to slide this problem over there. And then they get to determine, you know, from that trap perspective, what is it? It could be any number of different things. And they know the world. They know the setting. They know the environment, the dungeon in this case. Yeah, those are all some pretty good things. I like that, Jim. Good stuff, man. Yeah. All right, next up is Michael Parker. I gasp. This is an audible gasp by Michael. Tend to agree with Latvian Sean P. Kelly on this. I'm not sure. <laughs> hey, man, I must have had a good week last week. You must. This is what happens when I'm sick. I'm out of sorts. No one agrees with me. Um, I people it was just, my persona. It was, it was my your persona. Pers- it was a character you were playing. That's right. I'm not sure if I prefer one to the other. If you tried to peg me down on one way as being my preferred way of running, I'd just be as obtuse as Sean was. Totally not meant that as an insult. He just called you fat, Sean. Just saying. Um, Obtuse? Uh, Or was that my thinking? I don't know. Regardless, Michael, no uh, offense uh, taken. And as I mentioned on Google+, we're we're all good, brother. Uh, Michael continues, it all depends on the game and the type of story I'm wanting to tell. I don't want to focus on a player-facing direwolf system in into a game, I don't want to force, excuse me, I don't want to force a player-facing direwolf system into a game that wasn't designed for it because, well, it wasn't designed for it. More often than, than not, good game designs have put quite a bit of thought into this already. What core mechanic communicates the feel I want from my game? Experience the game for what it was meant to be, I say. <clears throat> that said, one caveat, there always is, is taking aspects piecemeal to supplement or alter the feel of a game slightly. Great example that I implement often is using a fate-like compel mechanic that may not exist explicitly in another system. D&D and Savage Worlds both benefit greatly from that. So it stands to reason that taking cues from player-facing die roll systems and inserting them into non-player-facing die roll systems could make for some great games. So I've talked myself in a big circle, contradicted myself, and landed on this. Do whatever the heck makes it for a fun game. We should probably put Michael on as a backup guest host uh, in case... Either one of us is sick, he can come on and talk around in circles like we do and fit right in. Yeah, I think he could totally. He could, <laughs> he, could, he, could, he could totally pull a Brett. He could absolutely do that easily. Easily. All right, next is you, sir. Yes. All right. Um, email. Poses a certain question about alignment. Hi, Sean and Brett. Here's a question for your show. I've been playing on and off since the first edition D&D and now mainly play Labyrinth Lord for my fantasy RPG trip. My girlfriend, who is new to RPGs, had the following question, which I think is pretty insightful for a rookie. Is a character's alignment dependent upon the social environment in which they are placed? I'll let that sink in for a second, folks. I'll repeat it. Is a character's alignment dependent upon the social environment in which they are placed? In the way that I interpret the classifications... The terms lawful and chaotic are labels derived from how the character would react to the government slash societal norms, and the terms good and evil are related to morality. For example, if Robin Hood, a classic chaotic good character, was placed in a non-corrupt society where the riches were spread out evenly among the citizens, would he become lawful good because his environment now matches his inner compass of morality? Or is it the character's tendencies towards certain actions which guide their alignment regardless of whether or not they agree with their surroundings? Thanks for your time. Torgo the White. Who? You know, I uh, think... Alignment, <clears throat> man. Alignment. Woo! Open, yeah. up that, open up that Pandora box. Again, we've talked about this before, and it comes up again and again. <clears throat> this is an interesting question. I think 
So for games like 5e D&D, I think most people who play that would agree that alignment takes a much a farther backseat than it had in previous editions of the game, especially back in the older days. Your hardcore OSRE, first edition, second edition, or Labyrinth Lordy type of thing. Um, yeah, I think the, the general conceit is that good is better than evil. And um, if you are, if you're an orc and you're chaotic evil, hey, you're chaotic evil. And even if you were raised in a place where chaotic evil is the norm, you would not be, consider yourself, quote unquote, good per se. You're still, you know, chaotic evil because that's just how you act. I think it has, I think it's supposed to do more with how you act um, naturally or your tendencies more than has to do with the society in which you are growing up in, what it advances or not. Although I think we could probably argue about that for another two hours. What do you think, Sean? This is a debate that can go. Yes, you're right, Brett. We could debate this thing uh, to the end of time. How? And one thing I would pose to Torgo, the white, would be his example with Robin Hood. So we could assume that Robin Hood would be lawful if he is in a non-corrupt society. However, if Robin Hood is truly chaotic good, Maybe even in a non-corrupt society, and everything is more spread amongst the, the you know the populace evenly, Robin Hood could still be kind of an ass, you know, chaotic person, right? Um, I think we're talking about the roots of that particular character and how it aligns with you know stealing from the rich, giving to the poor, living in the forest, you know, what have you, what have you. But if you flip it and you fulfill that um what is it Con- the, his conflict and it is no longer a conflict he could still be chaotic at his roots that maybe he's doing something else that's ridiculous i think an interesting thing that this brings up too is what you just said there that whole what happens when it changes what happens when it twists if uh torgo if your girlfriend wants to explore that hey what happens right you know, it's kind of like I grew up Catholic and uh, now I'm Baptist. Why? Well, I went through a thing and this is what happened. Or, hey, I grew up um, thinking this is how um, things were supposed to be done, but now I've changed my opinion and I've got something else. Usually have a different approach or a different theme or some reason that brings it up. It can make for some really good storytelling, honestly, to have a character take an alignment perspective or a creature or whatever and then flip it on its head like, you know what, I don't want to do that anymore. Or that's not me now. Or, hey, this big thing has happened, and I'm going to change my worldview. So that could be kind of cool. Yeah, you, you may basically explore the idea of the social environment being the reason why you're labeled uh, as a certain alignment. That could be a pretty interesting story concept, I think. Eberron is interesting because you can have evil NPCs actually overseeing a good... A, a, a good so I think this is just a tangent a little bit, but... Most settings or most environments, if there's an evil NPC involved, they are usually evil behind an evil force, right? They're an occult leader. They are, you know, conspiring to take over the throne. They are a bad outsider or aberration or whatever. And there's, there's, you know, we're going to eat all the humans and rid them of the land or whatever the case is. In Eberron, you could actually be just an evil dwarf that cleric in uh for in the church of the silver flame which is inherently a good 
religion, right? As in a, as a, anybody would define it, right? Good and righteous, I guess, is the is the point. But that per, that leader could be an evil cleric. But so, how does that play a role? Because I think most settings would be like, oh, it's a good. Everybody in the Church of the Silver Flame is all lawful good, right? All neutral good. They're all good, whatever that is. Mostly lawful. But what if that person's lawful evil? Yeah, I think the most fun you can have with alignments, if you're going to have a stricter type of alignment, is what happens when you flip it a little bit like that, right? Yeah. Let's say, hey, the head of this church is actually uh, chaotic evil or lawful evil or neutral or evil, some version of evil, and they're there doing horrible things. But the people who are following that high priestess have no idea what an evil, horrible person she is. She's just manipulating everybody down this path. And next thing you know, oh, my God, we were accidentally... You know, conducting a huge crusade and pogrom against this other race of people, and uh, wow, the gnomes turned out to not be so bad, type of thing. I mean, there's there's all sorts of great moral quandaries you can get into dealing with this stuff if you want to go down that road. That's right. <sighs> all right, <clears throat> good stuff, Torgo. Thank you for writing in. Uh, VC emailed us on learning new games. Uh, VC says learning a new game system is something that my group of friends and I have a bit of experience with, and I figured I'd throw in our experiences. My group spent a better part of last year learning how new tabletop learning new tabletop RPG games. We're mostly experienced in running D20 based games, mostly 3.5 and Pathfinder. We're looking to branch out and try new things. We said earlier the best way to go about learning a new uh, RPG would be to treat them like we do new board games. Have one person read the rules a few times, present the game mechanics, then test it out. Now, admit before I get too far, we had a few hiccups, some fights, and learned some people in a group can't teach. But we are now playing new games. It was really fun along the way. So here's what we did. Rule one. <clears throat> if you teach a game to the group, you have to read the rules and have an understanding of them. We didn't expect the presenter to have rules mastery, but we did expect that when we had questions, the presenter could, at a minimum, answer what pages to look at for answers. It also helped to tie it into other games we'd already known, like Brett mentioned in the episode. It's like D&D, but this is different. Rule two. This would be short games. <clears throat> Just long enough to see each mechanic used, but fully explored. We played these games two, maybe three Saturdays, and then wrote down our thoughts, talked about it a bit, what our pros, cons were, and then on to the next game. We're not looking to make a full campaign out of these games, just enough so everyone could see how the games were different. Combat, magic, hacking, etc. worked. Rule three, we the players had to be involved with character creation, if the system had one. One of the best ways to get a feel for the new system is to make characters. We would sit down and go step-by-step step with character creation together as a group with a presenter so that way if anyone had questions along the way, <clears throat> excuse me, it wasn't a huge fiasco going back and forth. It also allowed us to learn what type of game play styles were available. Rule 4, don't assume that just because it sounds like something you already <clears throat> sounds like something you already know, that is it. Give each other a break. We're all learning a system. The players are learning the system just as much as the person presenting. If they don't have the answer at this very moment, don't get bent out of shape. Write it down. Move on. It can be found later. Now, there were problems that came up with the system, and there were some exceptions. We had a few games where the person presenting didn't know as much as they should, and it caused some heavy flack from the group. We also had a few games where the players knowing the system, quote-unquote, better, kept on interrupting or correcting the presenter when they were explaining the game mechanics, um, which caused fighting and just a lot of unneeded stress for the group. Because of this, there's an individual who'll never play with their group again, and a few games the group will never try now. Apologize for the length of the email, though it seems I always write large responses to you guys. Keep, you're doing good. Keep it up. P.S. When are you guys going to put up some of the games you're running at GameholeCon? I'd like to know so I don't schedule my games at the same time either you're running yours. Even though I know my odds of getting uh, to join in are slim, I want a shot, damn it. P.P.S. Everyone listening needs to go to GameholeCon. 
PPS. <laughs> Do I need to clear my game with you before I run it? On the gaming BS banner, just thought of that. So Sean already talked about the gaming BS components there. Um, Sean and I, uh, I have not figured out what I'm going to run yet. Sean, do you know what you're running? Oh, I'm running Savage Worlds. Uh, forget <clears throat> about it for sure. And then I don't know what my second game will be. Um, here's the thing, though, VC, is when we submit, at least when I submit my games, I let Josh Hoyt, who is the event coordinator, kind of slot me where I can, where I need to be, because if wizards of the coast or monty cook or somebody's coming uh and i need to record that seminar i need him to kind of schedule around those seminars so what will happen typically is we'll get a list of all the guests and brett and i will say we should record this person this person and this person and then we let i let josh know hey josh here's my game you know my game submitted put it in any slot that does not bump up against any of these speakers. So even if I told you I submitted it for 10 o'clock on Saturday, there is a chance that it's going to get bumped to a different time if they schedule a seminar at the time we want to record it. Yep, so, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's basically the, the bit there. I will say that I'm going to run one Avalon game, um, probably, probably using 5e, I think, and I will definitely run something else. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do if it'll be a Call of Cthulhu or something like that, I'm not sure. But definitely one Avalon setting and then something else. But to we go to, to... I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Brett. Let's say to go to the meat of VC's email, though, I think this is pretty cool. <clears throat> it's a neat... I mean, to get a group to do this, I could see where some groups where, you know, you've got your scr- your scrabbling back and forth, perhaps, with rules and whatnot. But I don't think this is a bad way to go. You know, hey, it's basically kind of a session zero, if you will, saying, hey, guys, here's how we're going to do stuff. And uh, we're going to look at who's going to who's going to go learn the rules, who's going to help present them, how are we going to do this together, and uh, a true group effort. So even though, as he said, there were some hiccups and some people got bent out of shape, and but you know we're able to get things mostly sorted out. I I applaud you, VC, for going at it like this. I think your group uh, that's it's pretty it's pretty uh, um, not, not inventive is the wrong word, but uh, gutsy. Uh, gutsy is the wrong word too. Anyway, damn good of you to give it a shot and uh, try to put some credentials around it so good stuff man yes very good thanks for writing in vc he, he sent this email over at like six thirty last week and he's like hey how come you guys didn't put my email in there i'm like dude you gave it to us like 10 minutes before recording uh so he i put it in this week so i'm glad you had the patience to wait vc um main topic let's get into it let's do it All right, Brett, what's the deal? What are we talking about this week? Well, we've had a couple people, um, we've mentioned Session Zeros before in passing. Hey, you should do this, or hey, you should do that, or here's a neat idea. And uh, I don't think, you know, Sean and I aren't necessarily the right guys, or at least not this format, to say, here's what you ought to do. Here's the 10 things you need to do, per se. Um, I want to talk about how Sean and I run Session Zeros. Um, What I'm doing is working for me. And what Sean's doing, you know, was working for him. I don't necessarily know if it'll be good for anybody else out there, but I figured, hey, let's at least talk about what we're doing and see if there's anything, any nuggets of wisdom or diamonds that could be spit out during this conversation. Make sense? Yeah. All right. So, Sean, when you think about, uh, you know, what kind of ground rules are you thinking of uh, when you 
when you think about a session zero, what is, I guess, what comes to your mind? What, what are you planning or how do you approach doing a session zero with your groups? So this is going to be really dependent upon system and game. Always is. It is because <laughs> I wouldn't run a session zero for AD&D first edition the same way that I would run a session zero for Star Wars Fantasy Flight Games version. Or for Fiasco. Well, Fiasco. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. No, I, I know what you're saying, though. Right. Fair or point. a Fate game, maybe. I, and I, I speak out of ignorance because I haven't played Fate yet. Yes, that's right. I haven't played Fate yet. I'm still waiting for Phil Vecchione and Chris to run us a game for Fate. So, so system is basic. I mean, I had um, a little list here. System's a big one. Is that when we're going to get together a session zero? It sounds like you would at least talk about the system. Like, hey, we're going to yeah. play this this game system. Who knows it? Who owns it? Who has it? Well, that's that a big one. Yeah, that's a big one because if you're running into AD and D back in the day, and even currently, for people, there's a lot of home rules in a lot of the first edition AD and D games that I've been encountered with. I mean, some people will remove race limitations, right? So for those of those of you that have not played AD&D, you know, if you're an elf, you top out at like ninth level. That's it. As far as you can go, you know, but many people that run in Dungeon Master, that version, they'll be like, nope, I'm removing that, that limit. You can go past ninth. Oh, awesome. Thanks. Right. So a lot of those, system type things are going to have to be addressed or in the fantasy flight games thing is well and it may be just even just part of an education component like when they're when you're talking about the game system first of all well we'll get into it why i skipped ahead i'm sorry no that's okay no it's totally fine i think there's um the other piece that comes to me with system is before you want to um i'm running dcc and lamentations right now for two different groups um basically two different components of my main gaming group, which is like, you know, 15, 17 people just broken into two different sessions because one people can make it. Anyway, short version, I said, hey, I, I want to run Dungeon Crawl Classics. The group went, yeah, that sounds really cool. I said, who's got the rules? <clears throat> I'm like, I have a PDF and two hard copies. Does anybody need to borrow something? A couple people said, yeah. A few other people said, ah, I'm not going not gonna to read them anyway. Don't bother. I'll be happy to figure it out, which, of course, makes me cringe. Um but, and then I had a guy like Kevin's like, oh, I got a copy ordered already. Someone else says, oh, it's on PDF form. I'll go get one off a of drive through That's fine. That'll do the trick for me. Um, even just something as simple as, do we have enough copies of the rules? Again, system perspective, right? With DCC, you've got charts. The spells are uh, detailed, very, very detailed. And having that information at hand instead of my book being the only book at the table that you have to pass around to seven, eight players, that can be pretty handy. Just those logistical components of not only who owns it, but who has read it or played it before. For my Lamentations game, I had played one um, kind of a quick little intro session of Lamentations for two of the people that are in that uh, in that group, and they only had a vague memory of it as it was. So I wanted to make sure that I had gone through some of the uh, system-specific stuff uh, in that game as well, and also pointed out to them, that, oh, by the way, there is a... You can get a free, no art version on DriveThruRPG. You can go get the damn rules. So they're really short, easy to read. You can go grab them yourself, and that way you can have a copy. <clears throat> so that was always handy. But you're right, too. And the other the other piece that kind of goes with that, at it's almost like a pre-session zero, right? Hey, we're going to come. We're going to talk about this. Who's ready? <clears throat> Basically, who's done their homework? And when you get there and you're talking about the system itself, saying, hey, look, um, 
if I'm running an OSR game, AD&D, like, look, um, you're not dead until you hit negative uh, 10 hit points, and then anybody dies. Oh, okay, that's good to know. Some people don't use that rule. Oh, you're not using um, weapons, weapon speed or weapon type versus armor type. Okay, good, good to know. God knows if anybody actually ever did that. But <clears throat> anyway, and then, like you said, character limits. Like, hey, by the way, if you're playing an elf, you don't top out. There's no racial limits. And I don't give a shit about the whole women can't have 18 double zero strength because they're women. I, I don't care about that. Oh, that's crack. right. I forgot there was gender limits. Yeah, there were gender limits, too, that they used to put in. You could say, yeah, fuck all that. It doesn't matter. Do what you got to do because, that, again, that's just stupid in this day and age. Why, why are we doing that? Um, <clears throat> the other thing when I think about limits, too, Sean, is that when you were running Edge of the Empire for us, we're like, oh, we're going to play Fantasy Flight Star Wars. Are they Jedi? That was the question somebody asked. Well, it's Edge of the Empire. Okay. That immediately put us in a different that size goes, sandbox, right? That goes to setting. Yep, it does. So it totally, just, it's, it, it's a setting perspective. You know, what, what are the limits there as well? You know? Or when does it take place? Yeah, that's a good, that's, right. yeah. Timeline. I mean, it could be, that could be any game, right? If you're going Forgotten Realms, if it's going, you know, Cyberpunk, if it's going... Star Wars, then it's just what, what is the time frame? Like cyberpunk would be, well, are you f- far future and transhumanist or are you just gritty, you know, post 2050 and, and, you know, maybe Blade Runner type? Yeah, I had actually, when I was running Trail of Cthulhu the first time, like, oh, it takes place in the 30s. So I just went, okay, it's in the 30s. The guy's like, is it 33, 34, 36? I'm like, why? And they look at me like, because there's a war and there's this and there's... I'm like, oh, yeah, fuck, I forgot about that stuff. Okay, um, let's pick this time. Um, so one of the other pieces that I strongly encourage is... I'm very fortunate that my, my group is not shy to ask me those types of questions. But if, you have pl- if you're a player and your game master is kind of laying out the setting and this, that, and the other, if you have questions about it, that session zero is a perfect time to pipe up. That's usually what I... what Again, with Sean's... Um, Star Wars game, that's immediately what the Star Wars fan X and the group are asking. Oh, do we have Jedi? Did it take place before this movie? Is it after this one? Oh, are these books or comic books canon for this game? And so on shit that Brett doesn't know because he doesn't follow that much Star Wars. But you know, knowing when it took place between movies was at least very handy for me. So those types of setting limitations are things I usually try to focus on as well. Yeah, I agree. Settings got to be addressed to some degree. If it is, if it is a, if it is a component that needs to be clarified, some games you do not need to clarify setting, and you just can forego it. <clears throat> but if you're going to do something, this kind of is where setting and system mesh a bit, right? You say, "Hey, look, this is normally um, <clears throat> Edge of the Empire is normally this, but I'm going to slot some Jedi in. I'm going to take this one component from." This other, um, not Edge of the Empire. What's the one with all the Jedi? I can't remember what you told me what this is. Are you talking about the, the Force and Destiny? Yeah, Force and Destiny. I want to take some stuff from Force and Destiny and slot it in. But it's mostly um, Edge of the Empire. Oh, okay. So a little more heavy Jedi presence. Okay, yeah. Oh, and I want to have it after this time period instead of this other time period. If you're going to do any tweaks or or fucking about with the, the genre, the setting... Or system, those three things, Session Zero is the perfect time to bring that stuff up. If you're like, oh, normally I let you guys pick any race you want in this uh, Savage Worlds game in my fantasy Shine Tart game, but I'll tell you what right now, uh, I don't want any of this, that, or the other thing. Why? Because this is going to be human-centric. Oh, 
Why are we doing that? Oh, because here's the here's the system. Here's the concept I have. Um, so coming armed with those type of limits as well can be really handy. Or class or class limitations too. Have you ever done that, Sean? Where you've told people, "Hey, I don't want any no bards or no sorcerers or something like that." Yeah, there's usually a if there's a class that's you know I think it's like Alex. What is it? No pirates, no ninjas, no dinosaurs. Yes, <laughs> yep. No right. pirates, ninjas. So it might be. There might be one class that is completely out of control, or you know, if you're referring to something like what reference material can is acceptable, there might be some of that. That's like okay, you're nothing from third party splat books. You know, if anybody's played D twenty and you start getting into the mongoose bookshelf, or oh, there's a shit ton of stuff. Oh my god, it's just crazy. I mean, I remember my friend Jeff whipping out some paladin book and that guy was pulling all kinds of crazy crap out of his ass i'm like no no more no more of that crap it's like you're playing the anything that's published by this publisher for this game no problem but anything beyond that forget about it or let me know about it ahead of time and i'll make a ruling on whether that's going to be fine or obnoxious yeah when i used to run pathfinder or even now when i run Pathfinder, i'm like look it's core book only that's 90% of what I'll do with Pathfinder. I don't like the other, <clears throat> I don't want to use the other classes or races and so on. I want to play core book only. And somebody may say, well, I'm kind of thinking about this other thing. Like, no, that doesn't fit. And setting is usually the reason why I'd be like, look, <clears throat> this setting is designed for the core book, the core classes, the core races, the core skills, blah, blah, blah. That all fits the rest of the stuff. I have not had a chance to fully read through blah, blah, blah. But a lot of games, I mean, you get a game like Dungeon World, there's no, there are not a shit ton of splat books out there, right? There's not a lot of Dungeon World published um, splat books. Now, I'm sure that I'm not a huge Dungeon World aficionado, as folks know, but I'm positive somebody out there has more uh, playbooks, more this, more that. There's a lot, there's going to be expansions for any game that's been out and published. Somebody somewhere has created an expansion, either you can buy it, Somebody's put it up on a blog post like, hey, we tried this amazing barbarian thief combo. We call it the Barber Thief, and it's just awesome. You should try this playbook. You know, now's the time at your session zero to nip all that stuff in the bud and say, look, this is what we're going to do. I want to make sure we all agree on this. And then you'll have, you may have, as I have in the past, that one person's like, oh, but I really don't, I really want to have these other spells. Oh, I really like this other thing. I really want to do this class. Um, and that's where, you know, like Sean, what you said, like with the extra paladin book and you need to, as the game master or even the other players be prepared to talk with that person and explain why it's not allowed or, you know, either like, look, you know, I just don't like it or I don't want to do it. That's legitimate as well. Um, but the thing you don't want to do is crush somebody's hopes and dreams and they say, Oh, I wanted to play an elven, this type of elven thief because they get to use, they get to do slightly better backstab damage. Well, why don't you just use this other weapon and get this other feat because you can do the same thing and you don't have to break the agreed-upon boundaries. Oh, yeah, I guess I can do that. So now's the time, kind of leaping into character generation here, but when people are asking for different shifts and twists on the system or can you please modify the setting, Brett, or, hey, Sean, how come I can't be a more powerful Jedi in this game? Now's the opportunity for the rest of the group to help that person find something that is close to what they might want, but having that compromise discussion. Yeah. You with me? 
Yeah. Just making sure. Yeah, players playing, trying to <laughs> put all kinds of shit in your campaign and dick around with all the kinds of stuff. Now, Sean, when you've laid out your session zeros in the past, um, do you get a lot of pushback or do people generally just go, oh, okay, this is the game we're playing and that's fine. I guess we're playing in the Fraught Realms and this is totally oh, legit. Yeah. Or do you get a lot of crap? My, my buddy Jeff, he is something else. <laughs> I, I swear to God, he probably hasn't listened to one episode of this, 137 of them. But he will, he's got this stupid concept he gets in his brain and he's like really, really pounds at home. I mean, he is, he really, and he doesn't get mad. He really tries to convince me, tries to butter me up, blah, blah, blah. You know, oh, come on, Sean. It's just one feat. I mean, really, it's not that big a deal. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And I'm like, you know, if that makes him happy, I throw in the towel and say, fine. And at least then I know what I'm dealing with. The thing is, at least he's bringing it up to me ahead of time because, you know, if we're running a game and all of a sudden he's like whipping all this paladin and stuff out. And he's like, well, look, I get to do this and I get to do that. And I'm like, what the hell? Yeah, it got right out of this book. Well, hold on a second, buddy. Let me review that stuff so I can prepare how things are going to roll in this thing. So I, I don't really get too much pushback. It's I, I don't think I am... Despite my demeanor on the show, Brett, I am I am relatively easygoing and do want the players to have fun and want their kind of ideal character, whatever that comprised you know is comprised of, and have fun. I don't want somebody playing a, a person that's coming up short. As a matter of fact, I would rather just have them swapped out. Um, swapped out if it you know they start a character and they're like I'm just not having fun this isn't who I wanted to play and it turns it turns out to be that way all right switch it up no big deal well that makes sense i think honestly i think character generation we can probably get right into this now is that i think character generation for me when i tell people session 0 and they always say we're going to do care gen together i'm at this point i always say yes we're going to make characters for the first session I know some people in my group are probably like, God damn, why can't I just make my character ahead of time like we used to? Well, um, one of the reasons is, is now instead of like we used to where we played uh, White Wolf games or D&D or whatever the system was that we were into for a very, very long time, we're changing systems. And kind of as VC said, we're changing systems. If you're one of those folks in my group who hasn't read the book, hasn't been able to look at it for whatever reason, you're going to have character building questions. And now at that session zero is a perfect time to get all that shit answered. The other thing I found is that what I tell people when they come to my session zero is they say, Oh, are we making characters at the game? Yes. Here's some of the basics I've got. I do sometimes document stuff in a G plus community, as I've said before, <coughs> excuse me, telling the, telling the players what they can expect high level, basically seeding them with good questions that they can bring up to me. But I will tell people, don't come with the only character that you will play. My advice is always come with two, three, maybe four if you can think of it, but at least two different options of types of characters that seem like they would be fun to you. Don't give me a 20-page background, Grant. If that's what you need to make your character work, that's 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 sexy, that's great, good on you. But show up with at least two, preferably three in my head, um, concepts that you think you'd be that would be fun for you to play. Then, through the Q&A session, when I'm asking Sean, hey, where are we going to be? What's going to happen? What's going to happen here? What's going to go over there? When we did Edge of the Empire, I'm like, oh, we're going to be in a ship. No one wants to be a mechanic. I want to play a background guy who doesn't super get engaged. Mechanic seems really cool. I get to mess with the ship. I can do some cool stuff. I can stay in the ship and shoot the guns, which will drive Sean bananas. This sounds really fun. So having 
without a preset character idea coming and saying, I'm going to be a paladin, I'm going to be a ninja and digging your heels in and not having any compromise from player's perspective isn't very helpful. You know, just expecting a game master and everybody else to, to lean, to say, well, you know, Brett always wants to play the thief. So I guess he's going to be the thief again. No one else gets to encroach on his niche. You know, I strongly suggest people show up with two to four concepts that they would be willing to play. I think that's, I think that's just helpful. Wow. What? Is that crazy talk? Two to four concepts, man, just in case one like isn't the way to go. Yeah. I mean, if you show up, you're like, look, I'm going to play, I want to play a gnome fighter. It's gnome fighters, man. And you get there and you're like, wow, uh-huh. uh, three other people want to play gnome fighters. Well, that sounds boring. I don't want to be another gnome fighter. Why do I want to do that? Oh, I have a five-page background written up, and I already know who his gnomish dad is, and the fact that he's one quarter elf from this land. Now you feel dejected, and now you feel like you didn't get the thing you wanted, and you're that kid at Christmas who's really sad. I don't know, Brett. Maybe uh, you, as a game master, should just kind of roll with it, buddy. Oh, I'm more than happy to roll with it, dude. That doesn't bother me. What I'm more concerned about, though, is those players that, that I've had show up at the table, like, oh, everybody made magic users. Um. Wow, this will so be fun. They don't want to play if somebody else is playing the same thing? Not necessarily that. But what happens is that you're like, wow, we laid out an adventure idea. We're going to do an old school dungeon crawl. This sounds great. Everyone shows up as thieves. And there's no cleric. There's no mage. There's no fighter. The group goes, really? We're going to die. God damn it. All right, who wants to be the cleric? And then somebody drays there and fine, I'll be the fucking cleric. Or I want to play Shadowrun. And everyone shows up with Street Samurai. Okay. I guess, but when everybody is in the same niche in that game, sometimes not everybody wants to deal with it. I, as a game master, really don't give a fuck. Y'all want to play Thieves in a Dungeon? Go for it. It'll be difficult. It'll be dangerous. Play it. Figure it out. I'll I'll give you a challenge. Go for it. But um, I do that for the sanity of my players who don't necessarily want to double or triple down on certain things. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's that's fair, but I, and I think that's the discussion that the players have. Yes, like, I could give a shit, right? Yep, I always turn that on the players. Like, oh wow, someone has to be a cleric. I'm like, look, if you guys want to play a whole bunch of magic users in a group, I think in uh, I think it was there was a, a old forgotten realms group called the Party of Crazed Adventurers. It was all magic users. I can't and uh, I think I can't remember if it was Ed Greenwood had mentioned this in an article somewhere, but it was all magic users, then that's it. And this is first edition AD&D, so God knows how they ever fucking survived. But anyway, point being is that Sean could look at me and say, hey, no, Brett, you know, Brett, Jim, Kevin, and Austin, you guys want to do this. That's fine. You can all be thieves. It's still a dungeon crawl. That's what we're going to do. We agreed we all want to do a dungeon crawl. Yeah, well, we want to, I guess we're going to try thieves. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, we all may fucking die, but hey, we're going to be thieves. That's cool. Just, you know what you signed up for when you all pick thieves. That's fine. But, I guess what you're saying, Sean, at least what I'm hearing you do here, is that's really important that the players are talking to each other as much as they are to the game master, right? Yes. I think that's, I think that's critical. They need to question, ask each other stuff. Why do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? They <clears throat> Compromises back and forth between players. So if I'm a player and Sean's playing too, you know, and Eileen's running the game and it's going to be two more horrors, which I think <laughs> I think her husband's running right now for them, and they're and butchering the hell out of them. Anyway, and Sean and I are both dead set on being magic users. Maybe we need to have a discussion as to how we could do that more effectively, or do we really want to do that or whatever. But don't be afraid as a player 
to talk to your other players and, you know, have big grown-up kid discussions with them and compromise too. Well, so I have a question for you, Brett. All right. So if, so if you have a group that comes together and says, oh, I, I want to play Rogue or I want to play a Thief, and Zave and those guys are like, well, I was going to play a Thief. And they say, ah, screw it. Let's all just play Thieves. And Brett's like, okay, well, it's your guys' deal, right? Yeah. So Brett just runs the adventure no matter no matter what, the same way. Do I do that? Hmm. Yeah. Or do you look at it and go, oh, they're all thieves, so I'm going to throw in some extra cure light wounds where they might run into things, blah, 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 blah. I might. Now, I might tweak it, this maybe. Is a, this, is a, this is a trick question, Brett, because okay. I'm putting you on the spot. I know you are. So it's, you know why it's a trick question, don't you? Uh-huh. Keep going. Why? Keep going. Why? Because I can't win. That's what you're going to do. That's right. That's right. You're, you're, why you're, can't... you're Kobayashi or Sean Kelly Marumi. That's, that's right. what you're doing. That's, that's right. But why? But why, Brett? What is it? What is the underlining? What is the under underpinning thing here? Well, I don't run my game on a rail, Sean, so I have options. That's true. You don't. But you're also the one that says screw balance, right? Yeah. So, like as, as, as I said, I may. It depends. I uh, see. <clears throat> the last time I ran a game... That was all sorcerers in a Pathfinder game. I took it a little easy on them, and the players called me out and said, you're taking it too easy. I mean, like, yeah, you're right, fuck it. Uh, and, then I, and then I started slaughtering them. Um, before that, I had run in one of my first Avalon games ever. It was a 3-5 game. And uh, the group was playing with, uh, I shouldn't say first, it was my first D&D version of Avalon. We were running a 3-5 game. They all wanted to be thieves and bards. No cleric, no mages, no nothing else. Thieves and bards only. And um, they they learned that if they could get the jump on the bad guys, if they could kill everybody or incapacitate everybody within the first three rounds, they were golden. If after that it didn't work, they fled immediately because somebody died. They went, wow, if we get the first initiative, if we get surprise, and then we have, like, super kick-ass initiative, so they're flat-footed for surprise round, they're flat-footed because we still have initiative, and by the third round... We still go first, but now they're not flat-footed anymore. Now they have their real armor class. If we can't kill them after that, we have to run. So they looked at it mechanically and said, if this doesn't work after three rounds, fuck it, we run. Because two of their players uh, got dropped. And uh, one of them ended up, they were able to uh, keep them stable, but the other one just got killed. Well, there was, like, no mercy in that one. I see. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, Sean, we've talked about this a little bit, and I, I know you and I both use G Plus communities. I, I've run wiki pages and other things for my group. How much do you, ahead of a session zero, do you document anything ahead of time? I mean, I've alluded to the fact that I do a little bit. Do you document stuff down ahead of it or no? Uh, maybe a little bit. It, it again, depends on the setting and the rules, but it would, uh, I do, mostly if it's, um, Oh, I don't know. I I don't know if I document it much other than showing up to session zero just to lay it all out and just say, hey, here's the situation. Here are some things. And frankly, there may be things that come up that I didn't even think of that should be addressed. So, for example, first edition AD&D, again, playing. If I don't remember, like, the limitations on races and somebody brings it up, I'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, forget about that. You can go up as high as you want uh, that you can, whatever. There's no limitation. So it, I don't document probably as much. And frankly, again, I, I think I've mentioned this before. Sometimes documentation is hit or miss, man. Oh, agreed. And I don't, agreed. 
I don't want to spend like freaking two days typing down all a bunch of shit, making a, a player's handbook for my players camp for my campaign only to have the players let never read it or never reference it. I'd rather then put my energy somewhere else. So session zero for me would be more oratory. That makes sense. What I've done and what I would what I would counter that with in a way is to say instead of having like a player's handbook version of it, what I have learned is that the power of the doc, a power of documentation is pretty handy. Even a G plus community to say, look, it is in this setting. Um, these are the classes, these are the races, and uh, this is the planet we're on. Oh, okay, great. Even if it's just like those four bullet points as a reference for everybody going into session zero, it, I don't do exhaustive. <clears throat> I used to do a lot more backgroundy detail stuff, and it was really cool. Everybody used to read the hell out of it, but now we don't have time because of jobs and so on. Hell, we don't even have time to read brand new rule books half the time. So I boil it down to the main pieces. It's going to be an old-school dungeon crawl. I'm using Osric. There are no li- limitations on class or gender or race, um, whatever you want. Um, and, oh, this is the only splat book I'll allow. Even if it's just those things, writing it down and putting it in the Google Plus community, the reason I do that is because then when I ask players to come with anywhere from two to four concepts, then they have that's kicked their creative brain in gear where they're thinking about that stuff within those parameters. Again, it takes me, you know, five minutes to write that stuff down. It's not that big a deal. Yeah, I mean, mileage may vary. I mean, there's some players that go uh, hog wild and they are they just suck it all up and print it all off and get it all into that stuff, and that's cool. I just, uh, I, you know, it depends on what kind of mood I'm in and what, how much free time I have. Well, I mean, if you know your players too, right? If I was, yeah, not, if I never, um. With Chris, Tom, Emily, and Kevin, I've gamed with Kevin before. So when I was going to run Avalon with them, <clears throat> I had a chance to game with Emily, Chris, and Tom with some Ravenloft with Chris running. So I had a pretty good idea, but I would not run for them before. So I tried to give them as much written information ahead of time as I could. Some of them weren't able to read everything, but they got kind of the gist of it. And I tried to give them enough of an education before the session and the session zero to go through, hey, this is where you are, this is why I want you here, blah, blah, blah. So again... I wasn't certain, and I found out, oh, <clears throat> Tom doesn't have as much time as Chris did or Kevin did to read all this stuff. So if I want to get something to Tom, maybe I need to shorten it down because of bandwidth concerns. Well, it turned out he was super busy with his job and everything else, so, i.e. he wasn't able to get to it. Not a big deal. But <clears throat> um, it just served as, as a reference point for later on. Like, hey, remember that thing that I sent to you? Oh, yeah, I'll go reread that. Again, as Sean says, mileage may vary. So... Sean, I think the last thing is when you're when your session zero uh, is set up, you're going to do it. Do you expect to get any actual gaming in at the in your session zeros? No, no, no. never. They, it, we always schedule it, and we never have enough time. Like it, it is inherently t- too time consuming on session one or session zero, typically to get anything underway. Now, with the caveat that I may do more of an intro narration to the setting and where people are at and set the scene and the time and you know the timeline itself maybe that and oh by the way the next week we meet or the next time we meet this is where you're going this is where we're going to kick it off right so it's almost like a a borderline uh prelude i guess at best it's just I haven't I've never run a session zero and then unless it's like a twelve hour day, right? We're gonna 
meet on a Saturday and then start at 10. We're going to make up characters, slog through that, and then we're going to kick it off. Sure. But if it's a weekly game or, you know, every two weeks and playing online and each session's going to average three to four hours, now nah, session zero, we're not going to get in any specific amount of gaming. I absolutely agree maybe with you. In, I absolutely agree. Maybe intros. Maybe intros to each other, but that's... That can also be narrated even before session one. Like, how do you know that person or that person mm-hmm. or what's the relationships? Well, the advantages I have with my home group in uh, up in Wausau is that when we get together once a month to play, it is we start at 5 and quit 11 o'clock or midnight. So I've got that huge swath of time. <clears throat> you do character gen, and then we can usually get into some actual gaming at the end of session zero. But that's because it's a long damn time. Uh, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Yeah, I'm looking at you know seventy eight hour session. So I got plenty of time to get that done. But that's the the downside is though it's once a month <laughs> as opposed to every other week or every week when you can get together and kind of keep things cooking a little bit different. But I absolutely agree with you. It's um don't expect it. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, especially if it's a brand new system. Brand new setting, character generation has never been done before. No one knows the rules. There's going to be a lot of mechanical questions. How do I do this? How do I do that? Um, if you've never run, if you never, if your group has never played GURPS before, only two people have, you've never run it, you know, you know the variables. And look at it and go, wow, this is probably going to be a lot of um, digestion and figuring things out. Let's not plan the play. Some players don't necessarily like that because, again, they're kind of uh, some of the older grognards I've gained with over the years. Like, God damn, I want to play. I came here to play, not just to fuck around making characters. But once they get through a session zero, they get it and they start to see the value in it. And now they're expecting it. So I think I think you're right. It's a timing thing. And uh, don't expect it if you don't have a prolonged period to get it done. Yeah. Well, cool, man. I think that's what you and I do. And at least in a high-level perspective. So we can probably move on to Dire Hole in a minute, but anybody out there listening to us, if you have better ways to do it or different tips or things that you like to make sure you cover, I mean, that's <clears throat> that's kind of what we're talking about here in, in a nutshell. Is what are we trying to cover during a session zero to make sure that we get questions answered and so forth and what it all kind of comprises? I know there's more details behind this we could probably dive into further later on, but uh, let us know what you think. Yeah. Thanks. Let's get into die roll. Let's do it, man. All right. Die roll. Two to four miscellaneous points gaming and geekery we want to share with you or inspiration too. Brett's got a few. I got a few. Listeners got a few. Brett. All right. So there is, and uh, it was, I saw this, and I've got a link in the show. And it's to a Facebook page, which is a little video in it. It's, uh, it was called The Island of Terror. It's uh, near Italy, and it's a location where it is said that the remains of 160,000 people make up about 50% of the island's soil, Um, basically post-Black Death type of thing, where so so many bodies were just buried in mass graves and so on and so forth that half the dirt there is dead people. That's pretty fucking crazy. So anyway... Link in the show notes. That's just that's cool. That's cool from it. Not, not cool from a historical perspective, but cool from a wow. This could be a really interesting uh, game hook. Yeah, there's no undead there. No, none. <laughs> and as uh, as Ken Height would say, this is why you start with Earth because there's all sorts of fucked up shit here. I'm paraphrasing that last bit. Um, the other one, speaking of starting with Earth, there is a uh, Inca. The Inca apparently used different types of strings and knotting techniques 
uh, in some kind of a code. Uh, there's a blog out there, discovermagazine.com. I've got a link in the show notes. It's basically a, um, it's called Untangling the Ancient Inca Code of Strings. It's just this kind of cool little um, artifact around um, different strings and how they knotted them and braided and the colors and when they used them and so forth. It's It seems pretty interesting. And again, this is from a gaming perspective. I see that. I think about different civilizations and modes in which they would store knowledge. Um, <clears throat> I think of my dwarves having scrolls carved on stone or metal, but now take your shamanic mage in your D&D game or your street-level magic user um, sh- shaman in a, even a, a, a modern fantasy game, and instead of scrolls or whatever, they have knot work on their belts or braids and so on using these types of things to store magic. It just seems really cool. Anyway, link in the show notes. All right, so my one, uh, first one is one-stop stat blocks. For Tales from the Yawning Portal. So I believe on that blog, somebody went through and uh, pulled some of the stat blocks that you can just reference, which is nice if you're running Tales from the Yawning Portal, which is published by Wizards of the Coast, which has some classic modules in there. Um, So they went through that. Uh, Number two, Azrael Rocha actually has this, and Brett put it down under Azrael. I found it outside of that, but regardless, he and I, great minds think alike, he found the 1D100 Methods of Payment. It's on Papers and Pencils blog, and I think they've had good resources in the past. So maybe it's not always gold that you pay with. So there's 1 to 100 methods on a piece, uh, on on a blog post. You roll a percentile dice and see what comes up. Like um, some of these are awesome. The indebted must endure the removal of one of their eyes as payment. Okay. Yes. So it might be a little. Um, well, it goes from that to like up, upholding a vow of some uh, noble ideal. Vow to always sub, uh, subvert some noble I- ideal. Interesting. Good stuff, though. Yeah. Nice. Nice randomness. Like it. Right. Right. Um, I'm going to mention Eli's, um, Eli Kurtz's blog entry on session zero. We actually had this, I don't know, like three shows ago. I think we put it up. He mentioned how he has a session zero blog post and how he rolls with session zero. So I figured it was apropos to repost that link to Eli's blog. Yeah. And then you can have the last one, Brad. Yeah. Christopher Gray. There was, uh, I saw this floating around on a, on a Reddit and it's a, Cool little diagram of um, dragons and the interrelations between like Quetzalcoatl, sea serpents, worms, amphitheaters, waverens, dragons, drakes, hydras, lungs, lindworms, and so on. It's a it's a cool little thing. So just a link in the show notes there. That's always fun to have. Right. Yeah. So that uh, that wraps up the show. Um, being sponsored by Gamehole Con. So events are as we said at the head of the show. Events are being submitted. It's a gaming convention in Madison, Wisconsin, first weekend of November. Uh, I'm sure I will have the Sean Kelly Uber available. If you're not familiar with the Sean Kelly Uber, that means you give me a heads up of when you're coming in to Madison Airport. And if you need a ride to the hotel, uh, the at this point, Thursday, um, the con starts Thursday afternoon this year, 2017. But if you give me a heads up and I have the day available, I would be more than happy to pick you up 
just uh, email GamingNBS.com, GamingNBS at gmail.com. But otherwise, it's a great gaming convention. Brett and I will be there in full force, along with other community members, people running games. Um, It's going to be a blast. Hell yeah. It's always fun. It's a damn good time. And we'll have the keg again. So, hey, there you go. There you go. Indeed. And and, and if last year was any indication, you better get to the keg early because apparently our listeners drink. So, there you go. Yeah. And if you don't drink, hey, that's cool. Absolutely. Come Come and hang out with us. You know, bring a soda, tea, wine, wine, tea, water, something non-alcoholic, that's fine, too. Um, everybody's welcome. Anyways, next week, Brett, what in the hell are we talking about next week? We want to talk about the good and the bad of skill lists, those comprehensive lists of skills that are on our character sheets, or not on our character sheets. We'll talk about that next time. Skill lists? Yeah. Oh. Sounds fun. It will be. All right. Well, hey, thanks for tuning in. Uh, this has been another episode of Gaming NBS. I'm your host, Sean. And I'm Brett. Good night and good gaming all. This episode of Gaming NBS brought to you with the help from the following patrons. Christian Sexy Voice Serrano, Kevin Lovecraft, Joe Swick, Brett's Biggest Fan, Jeff Rademacher, Forrest DeGary, Mark Anthony Benedetti, Eric Jefferson, Andy Hall, Sean Nicholson, Tim Jensen, Chris Steele, Knights of the Night Crew, Palladian, Jason Blaylock, Remy Bellado, Jason Hobbs Hobbs, William Hunfleet, James Carpio, Not Caprio, Pure Mongrel, Lord Tentacle, Corey Johnston, Eric Tankar, Brandon Barnes, Mark Tasaka, Brett Pazinski, Tim Shorts, Dan LaValley, C.W. Mellencamp, Victor Wyatt, Craig Huber, Eli Kurtz, Lost Sailor, Graham Miner, Todd McGowan, Roger Bryce, Misdirected Mark Productions, Old School DM, Jason, Christopher Gray, Tabletop Game Talk Podcast, Stefan Dragonspawn, Evan Harrison Cass, Finolf, Ray Otis, Merkel Froelich, Eileen Barnes, Tony Baker, Jared Rosher, Jared Lytle, Todd Crapper, Michael Parker, Jim Fitzpatrick, Michael Drescher, with Static, and Alexander Auerbach. For the cost of a coffee shop coffee, you could support the show for an entire month. Visit GamingNBS.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thank you, patrons. Thank you, listeners. This has been a Litterbox Studio production. production.